0: Good morning. What is your main occupation? As a human being, what is your main job? What is it that occupies you? What are you to be occupied with? What is your main occupation? Let me ask the same question. Um, a slightly different way. Those of us who may be familiar with the Presbyterian tradition will recognize the question right away. It's the same question asked a slightly different way. What is your chief end? What is the chief end of man? The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism Asks that question. What is your main occupation? What are you to be occupied with? What's your job? What's your end? What's your purpose? Your occupation is to be occupied with joy. The Westminster Confession puts it this way. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To be occupied with joy. Which comes from God. This is what our passage puts right in front of us this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Our calling, our main occupation is to be occupied with joy. But there's a dilemma to that, isn't there? There's a, a problem, even perhaps a scandal to that. With so much sorrow and suffering in this world, how? how are we to be occupied with joy or, or even how is it even appropriate to be occupied with joy in the face of so much sorrow and suffering? Is it even appropriate? This is a weekend that our, the, na- the nation we're in, the United States of America, celebrates Memorial Day. It's a memorializing of the dead of those who have given their life in defense of this country. It's not meant to be a time of of superficial laughter, is it? It's not meant to be a time of enjoyment and joy, or is it? Now, I don't really know, actually, with regard, and I have no authority to speak about our, our country and its purposes and all this, but let's go to something more important and more eternal. In the face of life and death, of course, we're here, uh, and as I look at the folks here in the, in the sanctuary, I can't um, escape the reality we're in because they're all wearing face masks. You may have seen the the front page of the New York Times today began listing uh, 1,000 of the names of those in our country who've already passed away from the COVID-19 pandemic, approaching 100,000 deaths. How is joy even appropriate in the face of such occasions for sorrow and grief and mourning? I've been wrestling with this really our whole Christian lives I think we have and I've been wrestling with this as well and and even this week in particular. Some of you know um, my wonderful father uh, was diagnosed with cancer this week and begins um, chemotherapy and radiation treatment, an incurable form of cancer. The doctors have said it's not terminal um, but it's very serious, it's stage four. How am I allowed to really be enjoying anything in the light of that news, am I allowed to enjoy much of anything with this grief, this sorrow? And even a, a more um, particular example that's a little bit more mundane, but um, you know, com- coming into this room today to be with some of you and to be with the rest of you virtually, um, am I allowed to actually enjoy being here and seeing my friends? Am I actually allowed to enjoy live music instead of hearing it through the internet? Am I allowed to enjoy it in the light of the fact that not all of you are able to enjoy it? So that's the question, this, this dilemma, this problem of joy that our passage wrestles with. I, if you saw in the bulletin, there's a, a little poem by Wendell Berry that we made reference to at the beginning for prior to worship that gives some voice to this. Wendell Berry, this uh, Christian poet and farmer and agrarian. Why all the embarrassment about being happy? Sometimes I'm as happy as a sleeping dog and for the same reasons and for others. So we can talk about that. I encourage you to talk about it with your families. What's he getting at there? But at least we're using it for this idea of he just brings out into the open that enjoying things can be an embarrassment. But why? Why are we embarrassed with joy, with happiness? So this great existential dilemma is right in front of us this morning. Let's pray together for God to bring all of this home to our hearts this morning. Heavenly Father, once again we come to you in prayer, asking you to illumine our hearts, to light them up, to alert them, to wake them up, so that we would be able to receive the wonders of your word, the riches you give to us from heaven itself this morning through Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So open our hearts and minds now in the name of Jesus Christ, heaven come to earth, the Lord, the Savior, we pray. Amen. So we see in our passage this morning this direct exhortation from the writer of Ecclesiastes, Koaleth. He, he titles himself, it's a title that means the one that, that gathers, the, one, the, the preacher, the one that brings together a congregation, as it were. And whether Koaleth was the pen name for King Solomon or whether it was the pen name for wise members of, in, in Israel who made use of Solomon's wisdom, doesn't really matter for our purposes. This is the wisdom of God. And Solomon, or his, the one writing this book, Koheleth. he has, is now exhorting us to joy, to take pleasure in this life. He says it very directly here in verses 18 and following. He essentially says, eat, drink, and be merry. Now that can become a cliche where people use that superficially as a hedonistic philosophy where they add the tagline, eat, drink, and be merry because it's all meaningless. Tomorrow we die. This is why you should enjoy right now because nothing else matters. That's not what Ecclesiastes is getting at. This is actually the fifth time in the book. If we've been reading along in the whole book of Ecclesiastes, he has essentially told us five different times. In uh, chapter 2, verse 24. In chapter 3, verse 4. In chapter 3, verses 12 and following. In chapter 3, verse 22. And now here in this chapter, chapter 5, verses 18 and following, he's told us, eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and find enjoyment. Find pleasure. Find joy find rejoicing, eat, drink, and find enjoyment in this life. But, as we've said, this is not some mere cliche that then lends itself to meaningless nihilism and hedonism. Rather, he is able to give this in the context of what else he's been telling us, that there is a wisdom to be found here in this world that is not of this world under the sun we cannot find wisdom unless heaven comes to earth and gives us this wisdom if we orient ourselves properly then we can eat and drink and be merry eat drink and find enjoyment if we orient ourselves properly if we center ourselves properly in this world, then we can be occupied with joy. But of course, we can only center ourselves properly in this world by removing ourselves from the center of this world. We can only center ourselves properly in this world by remembering that this present life under the sun is not the ultimate life. It is merely uh, the present life, the under the sun life, the contingent life, the dependent life, the finite life, the temporal life, the limited life, a life where we experience the effects of the fall. So we center ourselves properly by removing ourselves from the center of the universe, by remembering that this present life is not the ultimate life, and by centering ourselves on God. Verse 7, he just says it directly. If you want a bumper sticker, Here's a bumper sticker, verse 7, God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. God is the one around whom you must center your life. I saw an article this week where most of us are aware this um, um, Hubble Space Telescope that's been out looking at the expanses of the universe for years and years and years, and there was an article published a few years ago that said, Observable universe contains 10 times more galaxies than previously thought. 10 times more galaxies than previously thought. In other words, now apparently there are somewhere between one and two trillion galaxies. <laughs> And, and so if you, and now the article goes on to say, so now if you start trying to count the stars, now it's something along the lines of 700 trillion stars. That's a seven with 23 zeros. This is how many stars there are. Seven, zero, 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 I'll stop. But seven with 23 zeros, that's the expanse of this universe. What if the article had said... Scientists, having studied these things and taking, a, 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 taking into account the expanse of the universe, have determined that, in fact, the very center of the universe is at the very tip of Jeff Hutchinson's nose. What if that's what that article said? But that's how I live my life. <laughs> That's how, when I'm not orienting myself properly, that's how you, when you're not orienting yourself properly, live your life. That in the midst of this galaxy upon galaxy upon galaxy, we think we're at the center. That's lunacy. That's insanity. No, no, no. But it's not meaningless. It's not that there's no center, that's not the alternative. Rather, there is a center in the creator himself. And so we orient ourselves according to putting God at the center of all things. And now, given that we're orienting ourselves by remembering that this finite life, this present life, this under the sun life is not all there is, the question presents itself. But what if heaven, what if the true reality and earth could meet? What if heaven And earth could meet. So let's move through this passage now, and we'll look at it in the three sections of the passage. The first section, verses 1 through 7, what we're calling true religion. And then the second section, verses 8 through 17, enemies of joy. Then the final section, verses 18 through 20, a life of joy. So first, true religion, then enemies of joy, and then a life of joy. Koheleth the author of this book has been which again written about the time of Solomon or perhaps afterwards but is as far away as 3000 years ago if not a little bit more recent but thousands of years ago this book written and we're now in chapter 5 of this book as we've been preaching through it over the months here and up until now this author has been giving us all sorts of observations and descriptions and laments and wisdom and autobiography. But he hasn't yet actually told us to do anything until now, until this chapter. Verse 1 of this chapter is the very first exhortation he gives in this book. What is the very first exhortation he gives? After all these observations and autobiography and lament and wisdom presented, now he gets to the point and he simply says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. The house of God is the center of existence, the center of reality. So guard your steps when you go there. When you seek to reorient yourself, be careful. Guard your steps. And then he goes on to say, guard your tongue. Don't just verbosely just talk and talk and talk. In the New Testament, we see Jesus saying that religious people think that they'll be heard by God by the sheer quantity of their words. The more they talk, the more God will listen. No, no, no. Jesus says there, Ecclesiastes says here, Let your words be few. Do not be rash with your mouth. True religion. Guard your steps when you go near to the house of God. Why is this so important? Well, he is taking us right back to also a place, the first commandments given in the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me. Fear the Lord. These first three commandments in the Ten Commandments are all about putting God first and not being rash or taking His name in vain, misusing God. The fool goes into the house of God, Ecclesiastes says, trying to negotiate with God. Walks into the house of God and all use contemporary uh, illustrations, because I don't really know what ancient houses looked like, but to walk into, let's say I, I, I walk into Trevor and Catherine's house, and I say, um, you know, I, I'm familiar with houses, so I'm now just going to take over your house, and I'm going to go into the kitchen, and I always put the, food, the cereal in this cabinet up in the upper right, So I'll go to your upper right cabinet, and I'm pulling out, oh, it says poison, but I know these things. It must be cereal, because that's where I put cereal. So I'm going to eat this. The fool walks into the house of God as if they know everything, as if they can negotiate with God, as if they they can domesticate God, appropriate God for their purposes. Any, Any reasonable observer of human history has to agree with Pascal's statement where he said, men never do evil so completely and so cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. That's what this is all about. True religion is not this idea where I know all about God. I'm going to claim him. I'm going to appropriate him. And now I'm going to be harsh and perhaps even violent and perhaps even murderous to those that disagree with my faith. Any fair observation of the history of human religions, including those of professing Christians, has to say this has too often been the case. We have not listened to Koleth's wisdom and been careful and been humble and silent and in a mode of receiving. This week, um, or maybe it was, it might have been in last Sunday's sermon. Either it was Preston's sermon last week or something he said this week in the different meetings that we had together via Zoom and our staff planning meetings. But he, he just threw out this thing that I just thought, that's a bumper sticker. That's just so profound. Here it is. He said, in prayer, we are invited into an existential crisis every single time. In prayer... We are invited into an existential crisis every single time. When you draw near to the house of God, you are being invited into an existential crisis every single time. Will you enter into God's presence trying to take over? Or will you enter in reorienting all of reality for yourself? Once again, God is at the center. I can relax and receive and humbly submit and get empowered to obey. If we enter into prayer without that reorienting, it's not real prayer. It's destructive prayer, as this passage goes on to say. So we enter into this. We draw near to the house of God. But, as we asked earlier, what if the house of God could draw near to us? We draw near to heaven Invited to draw near to heaven. But what if heaven could draw near to us? You may remember we use this to frame every time we read the Old Testament scriptures and we're using it through the book of Ecclesiastes. What Peter says in 1 Peter 1 about what Koaleth was up to, what all the writers of scripture in the Old Testament were up to. It says in 1 Peter 1 that here's what he was up to. He was seeking out... The times and places where Christ would come to give grace to us through his sufferings and subsequent glories. That's what coeleth is getting at here. When he refers to the house of God, he is raising this question. What if there's a Christ who will come one day and draw the house of God near to you? What if you don't have to go anywhere? What if you simply need to submit and receive the coming of Christ to you and your heart? What if heaven does indeed come to earth through Christ? The house of God now here in Christ. And then, of course, we see that is what Christ came to do. He spoke about the house of God so often in the Gospels that sometimes our eyes gloss over. The book of the Gospel of John is all about him building the temple. He is the temple. And now that he's the temple, resurrected and uniting us to him, we become the temple. I don't apologize as I wrestled earlier in the worship service for actually enjoying being with you all today, <laughs> even knowing that not all of you can be here. What a joy it is to be where Christ is building his church. And he is building his church wherever anybody is tuning in. Christ is now come to earth, the house of God, making us his temple, his house. And then we, we of course, we remember that him, Christ coming to earth, establishing his church here was not the end of the good news I don't know if you can see camera angle or whatever. You probably can't see all of the painting, but at least the bottom bit. He came to bring heaven to earth and then to bring earth to heaven. Ascended. Anabino. Ascended. We are now actually ascended with Christ. Whether we're in this physical sanctuary or in our living rooms, we are all together in Christ ascended. These are wonderful Fairy tales, the fairy tales that are true. The good news that Christ came to verify in the flesh for those that were there as eyewitnesses. This Christ came also to suffer, as First Peter says. The Christ was going to come and not merely receive glory and be glorified, but he was going to come and he was going to Suffer. Look at what this passage says about that. What happens to the sort of person that foolishly tries to appropriate God for their ends, destroying others, doing evil in the name of their God? What happens? Koalath says in verse 6, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Any of us who have taken God's name in vain, who have used God for our own purposes, are now subject to having our works, the whole of our lives, destroyed. But we remember, of course, the whole good news. Christ came to be destroyed in our place, to suffer for us, It is good news that there is a judge, that this universe is not chaotic, allowed to just run its course with no consequences. There is a great judge who will bring all things to account. Who do you want to be that judge? None other than Christ himself, the one who came, suffered destruction in our place, And by his flesh being destroyed, 1 John chapter 3 says, this is what he accomplished. He destroyed the works of the devil that would have swept us up in the coming deluge deluge and destruction. Instead, we're rescued out. Christ's own destruction in our place rescues us. And so now, the great words of the Michael Card song, we are glad to look into the judge's face the judge of all the world, because we see our Savior there. The great judge is also our Savior. So there it is, true religion. True religion, utterly necessary and needed in this world because of the next section of Ecclesiastes, verses 8 through 17, our second section this morning. Because of the enemies of joy. Here's where... The writer gives these different examples of greed that lead to violence and oppression. The human heart consumed by greed. Greed over others, loving money. He who loves money, verse 10, will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Bruce Springsteen must have been reading this passage when he wrote his song, Badlands. Poor man want to be rich, rich man want to be king, and a king ain't satisfied till he rules everything. Poor man want to be rich, rich man want to be king, and a king ain't satisfied till he rules everything. That sort of mindset, though, There's a clarity to it in this passage that leads to destruction. There's a clarity to it all throughout the scriptures. And in the New Testament, in Philippians 3, for example, listen to what Philippians 3 says. Paul writes, Many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. Poor men want to be rich. Rich men want to be king. King ain't satisfied till he rules everything. The end of that sort of mindset, whatever your financial status, is destruction. If that's your mindset. I saw this fascinating study that Harvard did fairly recently Some of you may have seen this as well. It gets at this. It it asked respondents to answer a question which they would prefer in terms of their yearly salary and income. And they established some ground rules before they gave them these two options. The ground rules were the value of the dollar doesn't change. Purchasing power is the same. Prices remain the same. So... Whatever income is, you know, $15,000 still purchases $15,000 worth of car or, or apartment or whatever. Okay, so the purchasing power remains the same. Here's your choices. Would you rather make $50,000 a year with everybody else making 25000 Or would you rather make $100,000 a year with everyone else making 250000 Which would you rather? I'll make $50,000 a year, everybody else just 25, or but I'll make $100,000 a year, but everybody else 250. You know where this is going. Half the people responded, they'll take the 50,000. There's something about the human heart, the fallen heart, the unredeemed heart, the heart that puts itself at the center of the universe, that prefers feelings of superiority over others to actual wealth. <laughs> if you would be the sort of one that would answer that wrongly, and on occasion, I'm sure I would answer that wrongly, C.S. Lewis tells a great story about you and about me. It's in The Voyage of the Don Treader. It's about that schoolchild, Eustace, a spoiled, whiny prep school brat. Nothing against prep schoolers. Just against Eustace and his prep school, which is a horrific prep school if you read the book. So he's a spoiled, whiny brat. And he goes on this. He's he's brought into Narnia. He doesn't even know where Narnia is by his cousins. And he doesn't like it there at all. And he goes about things just, I'm going to show them. I'm better than everybody here. I'm going to show them. And he wanders off by himself on this island. And he sees this dragon dying. So he then, when the dragon's dead, he goes into the dragon's cave and he finds all this treasure and he's beside himself with joy. But he's tired and he falls asleep. And the next morning when he wakes up, he has become a dragon. He has become a dragon. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Sleeping on a dragon's hoard. With greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. I'll show them. I'd rather make $50,000 if I'm better than everybody else than actually have a useful amount of money that I can be be generous with, but I'm less than others. I'll show them. That's the dragonish heart that has brought so much oppression and suffering and, and violence into this world. But this is not the end of our chapter. It's certainly not the end of the story. So we have the rest of this passage. Because there, in fact, is hope for the greedy dragon. And if you haven't read The Voyage of the Don Treader, the C.S. Lewis little children's novel, and that story about what then happens to Eustace, oh, what a remarkable story! What real repentance looks like, being delivered from your dragonish heart. So there's hope. There's hope for the greedy dragons in our own hearts and among us. There is, in fact, this third section of this, this morning's passage, the life of joy, verses 18 through 20. Behold, he says, he, he after... Describing this fallen world with its violence and its greed and its oppression. He then pauses and he, and, he, and he transitions and he says, but behold, I see a whole nother way of living. That one way of living I've just been describing, he sums it up in verse 17, a life of darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. That's one way of living. When you think you are the center of the universe, that's, you're free to think that. That's a life of darkness and vexation, and sickness and anger. But there is another way of living, he says. Behold, I see another way. I have seen to be good and fitting. This eat and drink and find enjoyment in this life under the sun, this few days of life that God has given us. For this is our lot. If God gives wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them, accept this. Rejoice. This is the gift of God. Don't be embarrassed by happiness. Don't be embarrassed by the gifts God gives. Don't be embarrassed by the privilege of being able to be here in person and enjoy live music in each other's faces, or at least the top half of their faces. Don't be embarrassed by this life of joy. Behold, there's this other way of living. Now, of course, this other way of living, it begins with that existential crisis that Preston refers to, a reorienting of oneself so that now we're living in the fear of God. God is the giver of all good gifts, and we allow ourselves to be occupied by duty. I think last time I preached, I told you all about um, the single most painful moment in my life. I won't retell that story. But there's a, another moment that I think is at least one of, if not the single wittiest comment I've ever heard in person in my life. The single wittiest comment. Now, you had to be there. This might not strike you as super witty. But if you were there, this was. we just laughed and laughed and laughed. We were out at sea. We were in the Persian Gulf. I was in the Navy. We were in a combat zone. I found out more about the mission we were on in recent years, thanks to Wikipedia, than I knew at the time because of being a junior officer, but Google Operation Praying Mantis sometime if you'd like. But anyway, we were there. Iran was putting mines in the Gulf. We were there in this combat zone. We saw some combat. And while we were there in October of 1987, I don't know if you remember this, but the stock market crashed, 22% drop. Stock market crash, worst day since 1929, and we're out there at sea, and we're up there at night at the, on the bridge, and we're talking about the stock market crash, and we're talking about what's it gonna be like when we return, we're used to like coming home, and there being a, the pier is all these balloons, and the wives, and kids, and everybody celebrating, our, and the guy at the helm, he just goes, oh no, more mouths to feed. <laughs> oh no, more mouths to feed. I just, oh so hilarious. So now think about that for a moment. Think about if, in fact, the reality was we're in a combat zone, but the life we want to get back to is a life full of nothing but darkness and vexation and sickness and anger. Would we want to return? Those who are not in the suffering and combat, as it were, it is our duty. To be occupied with joy. To make such a life inviting. The life to want to be able to return to. What if when I visit my father this week as he goes through chemo and radiation, I'm there but nothing but bringing darkness and vexation and sickness and anger with me. Hey, Dad, if you just get through this horrible treatment, guess what? You can come back to the real world, which is nothing but vexation and sickness and darkness and anger. Oh, I'm sure you're going to be super motivated to get through your chemo and your radiation to rejoin the real world of darkness and vexation and sickness and anger. No, no, no. Our calling is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to receive these good gifts, to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the life God has given us because Christ has come. In our staff planning meetings this week, we looked at Psalm 16. And there the psalmist says, surely the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And that was in the context of warfare. Warfare. And what he's getting at there is this life is not all there is. But God is bringing heaven to earth. And if Christ really has come and reorients our whole lives around him, and if he has not merely come to earth, but actually come inside your heart to join you in union with your own self, As Colossians 1, verse 27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. If that's true, then even when we're at war, even if we're going through chemo, even if we're in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis and the loss of income is terrifying to us and we're lonely, but in Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory, this reorientation takes place. And we're able to say, I will eat and drink and find enjoyment in the spiritual blessings I have in Christ. And if I'm given other blessings as well, I will enjoy those also. This is what faith does. Faith receives this as true. As Christ come to earth, If you just leave this outside of yourself as just a a theory or maybe you acknowledge the historical reality of it, but you think it's for other people. It's not for me. I'm not religious. Or I can't believe in anything that I can't see and taste and touch and measure. I can't believe in anything invisible. Or maybe you say, I actually do believe that this is all true. I believe that Christ came and was resurrected but it couldn't be for me. I'm just such a dragon, and I've been horrible to people. He would not want me. If those are anything along those lines, be reoriented around this invitation that Christ gives, this joy. He comes for you. He comes for me. He comes for dragons. And so we live in this life, We don't deny the suffering and sorrow of this life. We acknowledge it with clear eyes, as Ecclesiastes does here. There's a greed that leads to all sorts of violence and oppression. There's the false use of God that leads to all sorts of violence and oppression. We acknowledge that. But then what we do is we say, but that is not all. That is not all. That's only part of the story. That's the -the under-the-sunness of it all. There is a Christ. There is a God who's come to earth. And so we declare that is not all. And then finally, we receive this Christ into our very heart. We receive him. There's this remarkable passage. It makes no sense at all unless we've been tracking with the logic of all that these texts have been showing us. There's this remarkable passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, where before the writer begins to commend all these examples of faith in the past, and we might be familiar with that passage, Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame. But before he gets there, he actually commends the recipients of the letter as they themselves are champions of faith. And he describes them in different ways. Here's one way that's remarkable. He says, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. (laughs) How is it possible to joyfully accept the plundering of an economy if you've lost your job or lost income or lost health? family members losing their health. How is it possible? Because the writer then goes on to say, this is, you have faith. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you, the Heavenly Father, have brought heaven to earth in the person of your son, Jesus. Thank you that Christ is now here building the house of God, building his church, building the temple. Christ is here in our hearts. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ is here together, corporately among us, building a church that others can be invited into. Oh, Lord, Draw all those who are on the road towards destruction because they're centering their lives around things that are not you. Draw all those into your church and help us who have been drawn into your church to continue to triumph in the better possession, the abiding possession that we have been given in Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.